If you have a Bible, why don't you um, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. If you've been part of the church for a while, you'll know that when I come to preach here, bar last week, I, I've, um, I've, we've been working through a little series uh, looking at the, the letters to the church, words from the risen Christ after his resurrection, after his ascension. We are hearing words from heaven, and he is speaking to his churches. He's speaking to the gathered communities across uh, Asia at the time, modern-day Turkey. And we've come to the last of the, his messages for the churches. And he's speaking to an affluent church here, speaking to a church in Laodicea, a wealthy city. But this church has become compromised and detached from Christ. She is indifferent towards Christ. She feels no need for him. She doesn't even, they don't even realize how bad things have got. And what we really have here is a message from Christ speaking hard words here to a people who have lost sight of him saying, come back to me. Come and have fellowship with me. So I want to read to you Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other language, it might be the firstborn, the ruler of God's new creation. He's talking about Jesus here, obviously. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love. He's talking to them. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as, also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <laughs> I realize this is a big, weighty message actually, as we hear it, as we read it. And this is, there's weighty words that Jesus has for us. And some of you are new today, and you're thinking, who are these people willing to talk at such a deep and challenging level? And 
I can only, I cannot apologize for what the word of God says. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to hear Jesus loudly and clearly, I trust, this morning as we unpack what he has to say to the church in Laodicea and to us. So what would the church in Laodicea look like? How would you feel if you are, if you're coming, if you are coming into this gathering of people? Well, the first thing is you'd think is, these are pretty nice people, this is a pretty nice place. Because Laodicea is a, a pretty wealthy context. It sits on a kind of key uh, arterial junction. It's a, a, a good strategic location. And as a result, it's a, a center for banking and finance. They are a wealthy people. On top of that, they are a, a fashionable people. Sounds kind of trivial, but they, they look good. There's, um, they, they were a center for a specific type of, of black sheep, and, they, and, and so they kind of produce this black sheep's wool that doesn't sound very attractive to me. I, don't, I haven't seen any pictures. But apparently, it was, it was the thing. It was, it, it was the kind of, gave them a certain look of status. It certainly gave them a feeling of status. So you'd walk in and you think, these people look pretty nice. They look pretty impressive. And actually, if you spoke to them, there'd be no sense that there was anything wrong. There would maybe be a, a, a kind of preaching of some kind of genuine faith in Christ but if you look beneath the surface, you'd see a whole series of issues. The first is you'd see no passion. They'd sing the songs, but there's a, a real minimal sense of devotion towards Christ in people's lives. They're just kind of going through the spiritual motions. On top of that, you would see a pride. A pride that came from their wealth. Subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, you would get the strong impression that they kind of think they're a big deal. I am rich. I have prospered. You'd get those kind of subtle tells as you speak to them about their career or about their status and their wealth that kind of makes you think they, they know that they are a big deal. And more importantly, there's no sense of need for God. Their prayer meetings are basically empty. There's very little by way of personal prayer because they kind of say, I don't really need God. I've got all my needs covered and then the third thing you'd see would be a kind of moral compromise. Actually, beneath that veneer of spirituality, they have the same priorities as the rest of their city. They are chasing after wealth, after status, after health. It's also a center for health, as I'll tell you about a bit later. Their lives, in a sense, don't look any different to the people around them. And Jesus is saying, wake up. You're, you have much, much worse than you realize. It says you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Saying you have detached yourself from me, and without me you are in a desperate situation, so come back to me. See, I, I, I've thought, I found great profit as I've looked at these different letters to think of these churches as a person. In Ephesians 5, Jesus gives us this picture of the relationship between the church and Christ. And it says she is to be like a bride. The church is not, is she, not to be like she is the bride of Christ. She is to be the church, the people of God are to be devoted to Christ. Like the way a bride might be devoted to her husband, to be in love with her husband. 
to be committed to him in the same way as a husband and wife are committed in monogamous union, saying, till death do us part, I am with you to the end. That is the picture of what the church is meant to look like. Just imagine what this woman looks like, this bride, if we imagine her as a woman, how she would have looked like. Well, things have gone badly wrong. She is deeply indifferent to her husband. She has no passion for him. She has just a, a minimal level of devotion. You know, maybe she, she cooks him a meal or, or, or shows him some kind of affection. But really she's doing it because she should, not because she actually loves him earnestly. She feels no need for her husband. She is proud and self-sufficient, always distracted, as it were, by other things than by her lover. She's absorbed by the latest clothing, by the wealth, by, and, and not just that, she has sought other lovers. She has another guy on the side. Other loves have taken the place of her true love. Now, if you were to meet someone like that, you would say, this marriage has all but broken down. You may have a kind of devotion on the surface, but your actions tell a very different story. You're indifferent, you're in love with other things, and you are apathetic. You have no desire for your lover. And this is what Christ is saying. This is why Christ is saying, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Actually, the word spit doesn't quite do it justice there. It's the word emeo in Greek actually is where we get emetic, Anyone who's had, my wife took anti, anti-emetics during pregnancy because she was sick. And the, the word is talking about sickness. You know, if you ever taste, um, you're cooking something and you, and you eat it and you go, and then, and then it's revolting to you and you just, want to, you just want to vomit up. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I've tasted the faith in this community and it makes me gag. It makes me want to vomit Jesus is repulsed by what he sees in this community. And here's the rub, guys. This could be us. Perhaps it already has not not, uh, missed your gaze that this could so easily be London. (laughs) When we looked at, uh, earlier on in this series, months ago, probably none of you remember it, but Smyrna, the second church in this series, it spoke about a church that was suffering for their faith and even had to be faithful unto death. We're facing being killed for their faith. And many of us, when we heard that, it just felt deeply alien to us. Almost we couldn't really relate to it. Well, here, brothers and sisters, we found our context. (laughs) We found London here. We have a city that is affluent and proud, renowned for their banking and their fashion and their healthcare. They were they had they were close to hot springs that um, you could that they produced. medicinal qualities. There was even a, a kind of balm that you could place on the eye uh, that, would, that had made them wealthy. Um, they, were, they were known for essentially the ability to give sight. They, they thought they were a pretty big deal. And that, I'm afraid, is the situation in London. <laughs> London thinks it's a pretty big deal. That's why some of the rest of the UK feels quite resentful towards London often, because Londoners carry a certain level of, of pride. Boris Johnson, back when he was London mayor, uh, was addressing a whole crowd and he crescendos, I was watching it in one of those kind of retrospectives of his political career this week, Um, and he crescendos and saying, this is the greatest city in the world, and the crowd erupts. And you think, that's just, yeah, of course, of course we're the greatest city in the world. Of course we're the greatest people with our finance, with our healthcare, with our fashion, 
There's a sense of pride that just kind of is part of the atmosphere in this city. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you are in this context, you must be aware of the danger of cultural compromise. This is a danger for all Christians, but in this context, he's saying, the very attitudes of your city can very easily become the attitudes of this church. The prevailing sins of our culture, a sense of spiritual apathy, a complete lack of desire for things of God, uh, the self-sufficiency the sense of I'm all right and I can do it on my own, and the sense of idolatry, those are part of the cultural soup that we swim in. And he's saying that is the greatest danger in one sense to your faith because that so easily becomes part of your attitude. Again, to call on Boris Johnson for the second, and I think the the last time, this week when he was um, resigned, He talked in his resignation statement about the Conservative MPs as herd-like creatures. So they all did it. They all voted against me because they all did what everybody else was doing it. And he meant it derogatorily, but I think it was a perfect anthropological insight. We are herd-like creatures. We are not comfortable in being different. We want to look like everybody else. We want to fit in. It's quite an unusual person, either because they, perhaps they're a bit of a leader or perhaps they're just kind of an awkward character. It's quite unusual to be comfortable with being different to everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. And that, because of that kind of nature in us, we're going to always be naturally modifying our behavior to fit in with the people around us. So if you live in a city that is trapped in materialism and apathy and idolatry, then it's only natural that that attitude will become your attitude, unless you make a a kind of affirmative decision to not let it take over your heart. Isn't this the story of the Western church? Compare it to the persecuted church, the, the church which is up against it, so to speak, facing all sorts of hardship. We know it perhaps is a bit of a truism, but you look at the church around the world and sometimes you see a church that is, that is zealous, <laughs> that in the face of that danger and that suffering, that, zeal, that has actually brought out a hunger and a desire that says, I will worship Christ come what may. That persecution has had a positive effect on their faith. Whereas actually in the West, we become a little bit like that frog in, in water, that slowly the water around us is heating up and getting hotter and hotter and subtly... We don't even realize it, but we are being boiled alive by our culture. the, the, The lack of zeal in the Western church is a product, I would argue, partly because of its affluence in our context. So we've got to hear a warning. By the way, in this, you've got to hear two things. It's amazing. We see, we hear the voice of Christ speaking to the church. I think we hear great love and great truth. Christ is the perfect man, the perfect Lord who speaks into our life, who speaks both truth, that speaks to the reality of what's going on in our hearts, and yet he speaks with great love. Don't miss the love in what Jesus is saying here. That's why he says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Be zealous and repent. He's speaking great hard words, but he's doing it because he loves them. The love of Christ is so different to the love of the world. The love of the world says, I affirm you, and I accept you, and I tolerate you, and I leave you as you are. The love of Christ says, I love you so much that I'm not willing to leave you as you are. 
I love you like a parent. If you see your child walking around in ill discipline and beating other kids up, you don't just, you don't just sit there and go, oh yeah, I love them. You love them and so you say, stop doing that. And perhaps you do more than just say, stop doing that. My point is, if you love someone, you challenge them. And that is what Christ is doing here. He loves this church and so he's wanting to challenge them. I want us to hear the warning of Christ. I want to unpack what he's saying. Look at these three problems that I've raised with you. And then I want to see what Christ's response is. Three problems. The first one he says is, you lack zeal, you are apathetic, and you are passionless. The church in Laodicea is passionless. Many Western Christians are walking in the same posture. Christ wants a zealous church that earnestly seeks him and is zealous for the glory of God. First thing he says is, you are lukewarm, you are tepid. And, he said, and what he's saying here is you are like the water in your city. Laodicea was not too far from a place called Hierapolis, where the hot springs came out. The water came out of the ground hot, and then it came through a series of pipes. And by the time it came to Laodicea, it was tepid. It was not very attractive, and what's more, it had kind of caught, uh, brought up lots of calcium carbonate on the way. And so by the time you tasted it, it was just, it was yuck. It was disgusting. And Jesus is saying, you are just like the water in your town. You are tepid. You are not hot, you are not cold, but I will spit you out of my mouth. What is this metaphor of hotness? Well, we see it elsewhere in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, Jesus, uh, Paul is speaking about uh, zeal, the same idea of zeal, and he says, essentially, um, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. And the word he uses for zeal there is hotness. He's speaking, or he, it's, it's related to the, the word for heat, saying you're not hot. Never be lacking in heat. Elsewhere, at the end of this letter, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. Not just repent wholeheartedly, but be zealous. And what Christ is saying here is, you are tepid in your affections for Christ. You are not hot. And I can tell that by your works. He says, I know your works. I can see by the way you live that you are not full of earnest desire for Christ. And by the way, he says, actually, I'd rather wish you were either hot or cold. And you might think, well, well hang on a minute. Surely you know, their, their, medi- their mediocre faith is, should at least be celebrated. At least they have some faith. But I think what he's saying here is, actually, I wish you were either hot or cold. If you were cold, then at least you'd see the error of your ways. That you see that you don't really have a faith at all. But he's saying here, you're, you're not, neither hot nor cold. You're not so cold that you can't see that you don't have a faith. But neither are you hot. Neither are you earnest and zealous for me. And that is a problem. And this is more common, I think, than we realize. Gordon Fee, commentating on this passage, said, if being a Christian was a crime, it is doubtful whether we would have enough evidence to indict many of us who have settled into a Christianity of mediocrity rather than a burning passion to be Christ's people in this fallen and broken world? Have you settled into a Christianity of mediocrity, a kind of passive faith that perhaps just goes through the motions but lacks a spiritual desire, a wholehearted zeal, a passion, an earnestness for Christ? I think we have lowered our vision of the Christian life 
to consider it to be a matter of being able to articulate the very essential truth of the Christian faith and to be able to go through a few rituals, like going to church on Sunday or, or perhaps praying. But what you've got to see is underneath all of the activities, all the practices of the Christian life, is a zeal, a passion, a desire for the glory of God and for Christ himself. And without that zeal, Christ is saying you are missing something. You are not, I think it's not just missing something. You're, in some sense, an anathema to him. Recognize this in your own life if you pay lip service to his commands. Remember, he can see it by their works. You know, those of you who might very easily say, you know, Christians are called to love your neighbor, but you do little more than smile to the people uh, you live around and work with. You don't do anything like the sacrificial and intentional love that Christ is calling us to embody to the people we find ourselves around in the New Testament. Or you, you, you give lip service to the notion of giving, to the, giving being generous, being given to the church and other causes of Christ, but you do it because you're supposed to, not because you want to. The motions of religiosity without enthusiasm. Think how ridiculous this would be if we returned back to the marriage metaphor. Think about how you would feel if you're married to someone and they uh, only did things out of duty. They, they bought you flowers because they should do that. Or they made, cooked you a meal because they should do that. And then at the end of a lovely meal, uh, the, the, the wife turns to her husband and says, thank you so much. He says, I did it out of duty. <laughs> I can promise you now that would be a terrible romantic thing to do. <laughs> it says we, we know this about human relationships. That passion, that earnest love for your spouse is absolutely essential behind the activities that make up a human relationship. Why not this same relationship with Christ. For some of us, I think this notion of zeal feels weird. It feels like it's kind of trying too hard. Some of you went through life kind of making a fine art of not looking like you were trying too hard. You know, at school, it was kind of awkward to look like you were one of those tryhards. The earnest, he's a bit earnest, isn't he? A bit enthusiastic. This kind of just feels a bit alien, certainly to some parts of British culture. In fact, they used to talk about John Wesley and the Methodists, and they say they're these enthusiasts as if it was such an insult. How, how much, dare they be so enthusiastic about their faith? A little bit of religion is an okay thing, but the minute it starts to grip your heart, that's when you know you've gone wrong. By the way, I think some of this is because of cultural compromise. The people around you may well tolerate your faith. Oh, he goes to a religious meeting on Sunday morning, so that's good for him. It gives him a bit of encouragement for the life. But the minute Christ starts to take over your life, the minute you start to display and live out this zeal in your workplace, in your speech, in your actions, in the way you treat other people, the minute Christ starts to take ownership over every part of your life, that's when people are going to think you're weird. That's when the culture is going to say, you don't bow down to the same idols that we bow down to. You don't seem to be pursuing the same things. That's when you're going to start to stick out like a sore thumb. It's this zeal that will become a problem for you. <laughs> that's why some of us are not zealous. This is a problem because I think when you actually look at it, this notion of zeal is all the way through the expectation of what it means to follow Christ in the Bible. Psalm 63, he says he zealously pursues God. He says, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Do you thirst for God? Do you feel, he talks about being a man like in a desert, in a dry land, who is longing after water. Saying the Christian is someone who thirsts for God, 
who desires God, who desires to hear his voice, who desires to be in his presence, who desires to commune with him. There's zeal for the Lord. There's zeal for good works. Titus 2, he talks about Christ's work, redeeming us from all wickedness, purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. Are you someone who is eager to do what is good? Or do you look at the commands of Christ as a kind of um, necessary evil in your life that you have to comply with because you're a Christian and it's part of the membership requirements in the club, so to speak? But actually, actually, that's completely the wrong way. If we're Christians, we say, I know Christ is good, and so I zealously desire to do what he tells me because I believe he's good for my life. I believe and trust him. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? That's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 5. Do you hunger and thirst to be more like Christ? Or have you just kind of given up on the Christian transformation project and just thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not one of those Christians. There are those, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that small little spiritual elite, but the rest of us, we just kind of go back on a normal day. I think that's such a tragedy, brothers and sisters. I think we've written ourselves off out of this idea of zeal when I think zeal is expected as part of the Christian life. This sense of earnest desire for God, for his glory. Just think about Jesus when he clears the temple. What's driving him there? It's a zeal for the Father's house. It's a zeal for the Father's name. The Christian is marked by a zeal for the glory of God that says, I want this name to be lifted up. And I see it as a great tragedy that a culture, by and large, doesn't lift it up. It's this zeal that pushes us outside of our comfort zone and pushes us to tell other people about our faith. Because to say the world, there's something deeply wrong with the world, that they are without Christ. So this is a rebuke to lowest common denominator Christianity, to the formalism of some churches, of a kind of complacency and a comfortable vision of the Christian life that is ultimately passionless. This passionless Christianity is a contradiction in terms. And ultimately, I think it's a problem of unbelief. Our lack of zeal, our apathy and our indifference is because we don't really believe it to be true. If we really believe that we've seen the risen Christ, if for a moment we take seriously the promise and reality of the resurrection and the ascension, that Christ is reigning now, the great glorious King over his whole universe, then, all we, then, then we can do nothing else but bow to him than to surrender our lives to him. Our problem of, of, of zeal, a lack of zeal may expose a problem of unbelief. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you are proud, self-sufficient, and feel no need for God. It's just getting better and better, isn't it? I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, somber as I, as I reflect on what, what he's saying here. So we talked about uh, a lack of zeal. Secondly, you're proud, self-sufficient, and feel no need for God. Christ wants a dependent people who feel a deep need for him. But the church in Laodicea is wealthy. And their wealth has made them blind to their spiritual need and unaware of the spiritual poverty of their condition. Hear what he says to them. I am rich. His, he, by the way, he's not saying this about, he's, he's, he's kind of quoting their inner dialogue, the things that they say to themselves. You know, the kind of when you're going about your life and you just start, there's an inner monologue and you're, describe, you're thinking about yourself. This is the Laodicean inner monologue. He says, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. 
And I think when he says, I need nothing, he's not just talking about physical need there. I think he's saying because of their, their abundance, physical abundance, there's also a spiritual self-sufficiency. A sense of, I have no need of God. You could almost put it in, I have no need of God. Their physical abundance means that they have no spiritual need. They're blind to their spiritual poverty. What's this saying? Well, don't, we, can't, we shouldn't hear this wrongly. It's not saying that wealth is inherently sinful. And I don't think this is calling us to an asceticism, a kind of renouncing of all possessions and a kind of uh, walking, saying, you know, all, all wealth is evil. But I think what it's saying to us is that there is a spiritual danger to wealth. That's something we don't really talk about very often in the church. There's a spiritual danger to wealth. You remember in Mark chapter 4, he speak, uh, Jesus speaks of a parable of the sower. And he gives different things that where the seed doesn't grow up. And he describes those who are caught by the deceitfulness of riches. That they are the thorns that stop this plant growing up. He's saying this plant's growing up really well. And then, among other things, the deceitfulness of riches stop them from growing. Their wealth hinders their spiritual life. Their wealth hinders their spiritual life. I mean, we can't overstate this, can we? When Jesus is speaking in Matthew 19, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That is not a plate. That, that, that's impossible. He's speaking of a hyperbole, but he's using the metaphor to say it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we can, you can we go back and have another look at that parable another time. But you've got to hear what he's saying is, in that situation, and you think about the situation of the rich, rich young man, his wealth is a barrier to genuine faith. I want you to see something of the, the warning here about wealth, that actually it can be spiritually toxic to your life. How does wealth harm our spiritual life? I want to give you a few things. One, it gives us a false sense of security. You see... Why does the world desire money? Why is money sought after? Well, one reason is because money gives the semblance of control. Think, if I have money, I will be able to control my circumstances. So if I go through the hardships of life, the terror that lurks around the corner, my money will enable me to overcome whatever comes against me. Money gives a false sense of security, though. In, in Proverbs 18, Jesus is describing uh, the way, or not Jesus is describing, but Solomon is describing the way uh, the rich man puts his faith in money. He says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination, he imagines that his wealth is like a high wall, like a strong tower, like a source of protection. But we know that that's not true. We know that wealth cannot protect you from life's greatest calamities. Disease, death, relationship breakdown, tragedy. It's a mirage. Wealth gives a promise of self-sufficiency, but in reality, it misses the fundamental reality that there is only one who is truly in control of the universe, and that is the living God. In Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus is speaking about this foolishness that comes with wealth. In the parable of the rich fool. And he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produces plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and I will store away all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Aside from this man's lack of generosity, what what I think Jesus is giving us an illustration of is this man who is foolishly overconfident, who says, I am rich, I will put my things in barns and I will enjoy it to my dying day. But tonight his life is demanded of him. Because he is not the one who's truly in control of his life. The living God is. And actually the Christian was never meant to hoard up wealth so much that they were unaffected by the travails of life. The answer to the great reality of suffering is not to hoard wealth, but is to trust the living God. That he is the one who's ultimately in charge. And he is providing for me day by day. Lord, provide your daily bread today is the spirit of the Lord's prayer. So a false sense of security, that's the first thing it does. Second thing, it provides a false sense of spiritual success. This is kind of interesting. I don't think we see this in our culture so much. But in in Hosea, uh, the the people of Israel speak. And it's basically, they say, because we're we're wealthy, we must be doing well spiritually. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find me in the iniquity of sin. Saying, Israel said to himself, I am wealthy. I am doing so well materially. Therefore, I must be doing well spiritually. It's that kind of the way that that wealth puffs you up and gives you a sense of pride and that you read across from your material circumstances to your spiritual circumstances. You can imagine a picture of a kind of family who are... um, let's say, not living any kind of generous life, and they're kind of sitting in their, in their largesse, and they are praying, thanks to God that he's provided us for us, but all the while ignoring the reality that there are needs around them that they have, un- they have not cared for. That is the false sense of spiritual success that wealth can bring. Third thing I think it can bring is an overfocus on material circumstances. You heard Jesus in Luke chapter 12 when he said, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. In a wealthy society, it's harder to believe that to be true. In a wealthy society, it's harder to believe that life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions because you've always got more money to kind of find something else and to buy something else that can kind of kid yourself into believing that yes, it's true, that life does consist in the abundance of your possessions. Our love for possessions is a little bit like um, the way I watched like, one of my kids like, uh, might have like, a toy. And they'll be like, absolutely obsessed by this toy for hours and hours and hours. And it's no bad thing. But when you're looking at it, you're kind of like, don't you realize just actually when you just step back a second, this toy is, is not worth what you're giving it. <laughs> this, this toy is not the life-changing solution to your deepest angst <laughs> and the answer to your biggest problems. And it's very easy for me to say that looking at my child. But perhaps... Someone needs to say it to me as I look at the possessions in my life. It's very easy to look at on, on someone else's life and to see it the, uh, the over-focus on the abundance of possessions. Perhaps it's harder to see it in our own lives. And finally, I think wealth just provide, creates pride. You hear it in the, what these guys are saying. It says, I am rich. I have prospered. They think of themselves as a pretty big deal. 
And the problem is that pride is the great enemy of the Christian life. Christ said, I don't come, come for the healthy, I come for the sick. I come for those who know their need for me, who are desperately aware of the desperateness of their situation. Christ comes for those who recognize their brokenness and their sin and their need for God. And sometimes wealth is just going to op- go opposite, create the opposite effect in your life that you're going to end up just creating a pride. For example, I think it's no coincidence that Christ uh, speaks about those being poor in spirit, uh, being those who are near to God, and actually that those who are poor in material circumstances are more aware of their poverty in spirit. I don't think it's that Christ has a kind of greater love for those who are poor, but those who are poor are more aware of their poverty in spirit. And then we would say the opposite is true then. We might be less aware of the poverty of our spirit. So how do we overcome this? Well, a few things. First is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We cannot allow the blessings that we've received into our lives to become a thing that divides us from the living God. Instead, we must take the the things we've been given and adopt a posture of total thanksgiving saying, I didn't deserve any of this. Not I have prospered. The Lord has been kind to me. And even though I don't deserve anything, I receive his generosity into my hands. Thanksgiving is the number one antidote to the pride that comes from wealth. Second of all, generosity. Every time you are generous, you are running directly against that spirit inside yourself that says, I must hold this for myself and I must meet my own needs. In a world that worships money and worships possessions, your, your giving, your generosity, is an act of blasphemy. <laughs> it's basically saying, I will not worship this God of materialism. I will not believe that these things are what I need to make me happy. It's your way of speaking to your own heart and saying, life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. I'm going to be generous. There are all sorts of other reasons. This is not a sermon on generosity. But as you adopt the posture of generosity that Christ calls all of us to, if we follow him, it's the greatest antidote to the way that wealth can otherwise just take a grip on your heart. Thanksgiving, generosity, and thirdly, give yourself away. You see, I think wealth often brings with it a certain level of privilege. Our lives are easier if you're wealthy, you have, you've got more comfort, you can kind of do, deal with the difficult things of life. So you probably don't feel very natural, in the natural, dependent on God. But if you live a Christian life of giving yourself away to the people around you, of serving the people in your church family, of serving your neighbours, of living a life of complete generosity, you will find yourself having to depend on God. You will find yourself having to adopt that posture of dependence. Look at Paul and look at the great needs that he lives with. He lives those needs. He lives that sense of, of, of desperation because he has given himself away, because he's poured himself out and sent God all around the Roman world to, give, to take the cause of Christ and the gospel. So put yourself in a posture of dependence by giving yourself away. Christ wants dependent disciples, those who don't believe the hype of this city or the hype that their, their material circumstances might tell them, they know as they know as they know that they are sinners in need of grace and they are servants of Christ, first and foremost, walking in dependence and generosity. I'm going to skip the next point. You'll be glad to know. Um, <laughs> so we have in, in this picture here a picture of a people who are poor. They think they're rich. They are materially rich, but they are poor. Why? Because they have uh, 
They lack a love for the Lord, and they are self-sufficient, and they are pursuing other loves. They are pursuing all sorts of other idols. They are in hock to the same desires that their city is in hock to. They've adopted the same loves of their city. So what is Christ's response to them? Well, first it's to see their poverty, but then Jesus has a remarkable answer for them. Jesus says, I am better, and I want to have fellowship with you. It's the exact opposite of what you'd expect. He says, I am better than the things that you are running after, and I want to eat with you. Verse 18 is an incredible verse that really is just, you could marvel at it for a long time. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is saying, I am better than the idols of your culture. How could you pursue these other things when I am so much greater? How can you be apathetic in view of my gifts? This is not a coincidental list. The three things that Jesus is saying to them, the things that he offers, are the superior version of the counterfeits that they are celebrating in their culture. They are a people who pursue wealth. Jesus says, no, come to me, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. To a culture that is pursuing material wealth, Jesus is saying, I have a spiritual wealth that is far greater than the material wealth that you might be pursuing. You pursue wealth, I offer you gold refined by fire. These true riches are the faith that he gives them, the gospel that he holds out to them, refined by testing. That faith is refined by testing in their lives. He's saying the wealth that I offer is so much greater than the wealth of this world. The wealth of this world will be destroyed by moth and rust, by calamity, by stock market falls or crashes, by your own death. You cannot take that with you. The wealth of this world is temporary, but the riches that I offer are far greater. Those who are in Christ are rich. They are rich in his love. They are rich in his affection. They are rich even in spiritual rewards. The rewards of Christ. The the crown that will be given to those who have been faithful. Those are true riches that last forever. The riches that cannot ever be ripped away from you. Saying, which riches are you pursuing? Come to me and find the riches that I have which are far superior to the riches of this world. Second, they're a culture that pursues fashion. I mentioned about the black cloth. I think that, that it seems interesting that the next thing he says to them, white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, the shame of your nakedness is about the fact they've been committing adultery, they've been pursuing other idols. We won't go into that. But he's saying, in some sense, many of us would relate to that notion of pursuing beauty in the eyes of the world. Why do, we, why do you buy nice clothes? Because you want to be thought of as beautiful. Clothes are a status symbol in some sense. Partly, at least. I think you'll accept that. 
saying, you pursue beauty in the eyes of the world. You pursue the approval and the status of the world. But Christ offers white garments washed in his blood. He offers the status of being seated with him for eternity. The status of becoming part of Christ's unblemished bride. You pursue beauty in this world. Christ offers the true beauty of becoming like Christ. You pursue the approval of the people around you. Christ offers the true affection. His affection which is unremitting and so much greater than the fickle affections of this world. Can you see the argument that Christ is making? Again and again, he's saying, I am superior to the things that you are pursuing. Finally, he talks about their eyes. He says, salve to anoint your eyes. I mentioned before that this is a community that had this special lotion that, you could, that could kind of cure their eyes. In a sense, they'd say, we are the ones who give sight. Christ is saying, you pursue sight in a worldly sense. I give you real insight. I tell you what you're really like. I give you the true diagnosis of your heart and I show you the reality of the world around you. Who you really are and the world as I've made it. I am the window into true reality. He speaks to a people who've given themselves away to all sorts of desires, who are walking in idolatry and he says, only in me will you find the dignity, honour, the true wealth, the wisdom, the riches that are more precious than gold. Come to me and find the satisfaction for your deepest longings. I am superior to all the idols that you might be given to worship. The way we fight apathy, the way we fight this sense of self-sufficiency is by reminding ourselves of the superiority of Christ. Finally saying that Jesus is better. That is the undergirding answer to why he's worth your zeal and your affection and your love. By the way, isn't it incredible he's so generous to a people who've given themselves away in the pursuit of all other loves and all other worships, Christ comes to them with gifts. <laughs> Can you imagine if, you, if, a, ch- if a child is, is acting really naughtily and badly, the parent comes bearing gifts? This sounds so counterintuitive. Here is Christ, the great generous king, coming, saying, I have this treasure, I have this um, insight, I have this wisdom, I have this dignity that you are only, that you're only glimpsing of as you pursue those other things. Come and pursue me. And finally, Christ offers himself. Christ's ultimate answer here is not found in clever answers. It's found in his offer of himself. Did you see this offer of communion? This last verse. This offer to come and eat. He knocks at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You've heard it a million times if you're a Christian. You've heard it and you think it's, a, it's an invitation to, to find Christ for the first time. This is an invitation to a people who, who know Christ but are, are detached from him. This is Christ knocking on the door of the heart of the Christian. I think it can be used evangelistically. I'm not denying its rightness there. But he's saying he's standing at the door of the heart of the believer who's become cold in their love towards him and enmeshed in all pursuing all sorts of other things, and he's saying, no, I want to come and eat with you. I want to come and be with you. As we eat with him, as we experience fellowship with him, 
our hearts are changed. As we experience the grace of Christ knocking on our door, even as we pursued other loves, we realize the error of our ways. As we see his glory in his word, our apathetic hearts are lifted to worship. As we see his strength and his majesty, we think how foolish I could be to try and be self-sufficient in this life and to kid myself into thinking that I am self-sufficient. As we see his beauty and his goodness, as we see this incredible grace that goes after us, even as we have pursued other lovers, we think, how could I worship these other things that are temporary, that do not love me, not like the great conquering hero who gave his life for me? See the great contrast between our love and his love. Our hearts are fickle. We are drawn away by many things. We are enraptured by the trinkets that this world has to offer. Our hearts, our love is weak. We know that about ourselves. This diagnosis rings true. And yet, see the blazing heart of the risen Christ. See the commitment of the risen Christ. See the risen Christ who, to this day, is knocking on the door of your heart. It is not a past tense. This is a present imperative. Imperative. Christ is saying, I, at this moment, am longing for fellowship with you. I want you. I want to eat with you. I want to enjoy fellowship with you. I love you. I desire you. I want all of your heart. That is Christ's blazing hot love. And that love is so much greater than our love. Our hearts are fickle, and yet we encounter a risen saviour who loves us and is pursuing us, and it is incredible. Even as we take communion, in a moment, that's what we're going to do. We're going to come and eat with Christ. We're going to come and feed on that bread and that wine as a reminder of the, the Christ who gave his life for us. Every week is an invitation to come and feast on him and his promises. So as I close, I want you to hear two things. Some of you, perhaps all of you, I want you to hear his rebuke. <laughs> I want you to hear his challenge, his call to repentance. There may be action some of you need to take as a result of this. Turn around, be zealous and repent, Christ says. Some of you may need to change the way you approach your wealth, the way you, the way you do the Christian life. Ultimately, you may need to say, God, my heart is fickle. I want to burn with passion and love for you. So some of you need to hear the rebuke, but you also need to hear the invitation from Christ. Come to me. Come and eat with me. Come and enjoy him. Grasp his goodness again and say to yourself, how could I pursue the vain things of this world when I have such a glorious, perfect saviour in Jesus Christ?